Good morning, everyone. Good afternoon. Welcome to this uh, GD today. Today is icebreaker. You know, we don't have an icebreaker. We have an iceberg breaker. Over to you, Kishore. <laughs> All right. Uh, let me uh, let me share my screen. Uh, we normally don't share screens here, but <laughs> I'll do that today. Can the rest of us please go on mute? Yeah. Okay, let me go to the present mode. Yeah. Can you all see the screen? Yeah, Kishore, if you can minimize yes. that uh, the window that you have with the four people. Oh, sorry, sorry, it's a local one. Sorry, I'll I'll minimize. Sorry, please go ahead. Guys, I can hear some background. Can somebody who's not on mute please mute themselves? Kishore, otherwise, you are the host. Please mute everybody. Oh, yeah. I can do that. Uh, yeah, I think it seems to be better now. Yeah, go ahead. All right. All right. Um, Haryom, everyone. And... Thank you so much for this opportunity to share um, my learnings and which again, uh, I must say, I'll, I'll start by saying gratitude to the teachers and I've always been amazed at how this knowledge from 3000 to 5000 years ago has been transmitted from one generation to the other. Uh, we can hardly keep things or remember things from 20 years ago, leave alone. 5,000 years ago. So the fact that we have it today uh, is simply mind-boggling. And uh, so I'm thankful for, to everyone who has contributed towards that, right? So, uh, yeah, so and that's where I'll start. I'll also say that um, I, I'm a seeker, like, just like all of you. Uh, so I'm, you know, any mistake that I've made in, in the analysis, please correct me. And uh, is again, due to the limited understanding of my, my limited understanding rather than something that came up uh, from the gurus and or from the teachings. So, um, yeah, so uh, let, me, let me actually, sorry, there are people who are starting, uh, are, are, and I just need to admit them, sorry. Yeah, it was interesting to note that actually yesterday was World um, Mental Health Day and um, it was also good good day to have listened to Swami Bhumananda Tirtha and uh, Swami Nutan Swamiji yesterday and uh, frankly um, uh, E. Sridharan uh, which is fascinating actually to hear uh, on some practical uh, applications. So okay happiness so let me start where I uh, initially started um, 
uh, when I started down this path, I, I was wandering around, right? I was wandering around and um, uh, in, just because there's just so much material, there is just so many different ways. Um, and the more you read, the, the more you realize that there is just phenomenal amount of material. So what is right, what is wrong? Not, not what is wrong, what is right, what path is right for you? Um, it was very, very hard, right? So in that sense, I was wandering around a little bit. Uh, for, uh, I would say for close to a year and a half, trying to figure out what is this, right? And uh, where are we headed with this? So finally, uh, it dawned on me that there needs to be, there must be some objective that we are, are all seeking. When we say seekers, what are we seeking, right? And can we define that? Uh, so again, I, um, I must warn you in advance that I'll, I'll use some terminologies that I'm used to as an engineer and looking at this entire problem, coming at it from that angle uh, in some ways. So in that sense, what are we solving for, right? What is, um, and I realized that we are really solving for happiness. And I think just like um, um, what uh, Swamiji said yesterday, which was uh, pretty awesome, uh, you know, no matter what we do, I would say that we do it because we want to be happy, right? So we do different things, all the different actions, whatever we end up deciding, you start asking this question of why, right? So why do we want a new uh, house, a bigger house, or why do we want this new job? And then keep asking why, keep asking why, and you will end up with, I want to be happy, right? So um, in, I, I would say in, in most cases, you will end up in, I, am, I want to be happy within around six or seven whys, right? no matter what. So I realized, okay, you know what? We are solving for that really. However, this is how we define happiness today. I'm happy if and when certain conditions are met, right? Now you can add any, it's so obviously this is very subjective. Uh, for each one of us, uh, the conditions are very different. But in general, that's the equation that we set ourselves up to today, right? So when certain conditions are met, it could be something related to your child, could be something related to relationships. Some, some others might say, I'm happy when I'm with friends and I'm having fun or I'm traveling, whatever it may be. But there is a condition associated with it. And why do we do that? Um, uh, we do that because that's what we are seeing today, right? That's what we have seen, what, that's what we are exposed to today. We see that others are uh, quote unquote happy in, I don't know, in, in ads and in uh, pictures or when we hear about somebody or obviously in social media, I don't know how, why I forgot that. Um, and we, we think that is happiness, right? And so we want that. So that's what we are exposed to. And, and that's why we've, uh, for a period of time, we are conditioned to want that. And we realize that that's what is happiness, right? But um, so we, uh, this chart, by the way, um, the Y map, which is not meant to, uh, for us to, <laughs> sorry, I, I couldn't get it in a better way, but the whole point, the Uber point being that we, no matter what we go through, we eventually end up in, uh, I want to be happy as the, as the end state, right? So that was the point with this chart. So 
so we we so we end up doing that and we uh, we end up doing so the objective of realizing happiness is correct just that we defined it wrongly based on what we know right and we are in this pursuit today no matter what we do um again again i'll stop for questions i know there are some questions that probably come to you right now when i say this but uh, we'll stop for questions so we can answer and move on or, or we can as a group address it and move on um but how are we doing right if that's the pursuit that humanity has been following for quite some time we've been doing this for i don't know hundreds and hundreds of years but are we questioning where is this taking us right not just in our own lives but in the lives of others that we are able we are um, able to see or even in the lives of others in the past uh, that we have read how, how are we doing i believe i'm sorry if if i sound a little <laughs> uh, this slide is a little um, depressing but for the for the for the vast majority they would say it's a combination of all these words that are on the screen here stressed anxious yes we are happy sometimes um when certain conditions are met we do feel happiness but then that goes away right it's very fleeting in nature but then again we end up coming to i think i spoke about this let me come back to that um we almost feel like um that our default state is below this thick line here right um if just to take a moment here with this chart if it, it, it almost feels like this to me that there is this default state of dissatisfaction right uh, i'll explain what i feel um about that so the um, it seems like we are in a state of uh, we are not in a state of equilibrium right and even a physic even physical matter when it's not in a state of equilibrium when it's not in the stable state is going to try and get to the stable state it's in a state of restlessness until it reaches a stable state and what is stable state a stable state is something where it seems natural it seems like that's what you're supposed to be right and there is no more uh, pushing and pulling because you feel that is it's not inertia but at the same time there is this, there is a, a feeling of lightness because you've you've reached there right because um um that is what you're supposed to be right but we're not there uh, we're far from it and that's not how we feel even though that seems like it seems like we are trying to reach there right so that's the dissatisfaction i'm talking about it's not like we are all sad and depressed it's not that it is just that there is something that seems to be missing and something that we are running towards one way or the other all the time all the time right so um i i feel we are below this um, line for the most part uh, and we do feel happy we do feel happy at various times no doubt about it so again but i think that the happiness that we feel is of lower grade right in in the bhagavad gita it's explained as rajasic happiness in the 18th chapter so it is of a lower grade because it is conditional and since it's conditional it's also fleeting and let me explain why um so when the conditions are met 
And as long as the conditions are met, we feel happy, right? When you are um, in, uh, you know, in Goa or in Hawaii or something, you're happy. You're back, you're not. When you are with friends, you're happy. When, when the friends go, you're not. When the child is with you, you're happy. When the child goes off to college, you're not, right? So there is this conditional happiness and it's fleeting because the conditions will change. Now, why will the conditions change? Because we are basing our happiness on something that's constantly changing, right? Constantly changing, whether it is, so we are basing it on an object which is outside of ourselves and we do not have control over all of those things and, and by nature, they are all changing. Now, if those objects are, could be places, people, things, events, situations. Again, Swamiji said this yesterday. If you look at people, and if let's say we say that I'm happy when I'm with person X or Y. Now, you, we are changing. Our mind, our goals, our wants, um, our likes and dislikes, that is changing. The other person's likes, dislikes, wants, everything is changing. And we are changing in different ways. So we are kind of putting our happiness on this relationship or this thing that ties us, but that thing is changing in, in very unpredictable ways. So obviously anything that's based on that particular uh, thing that's connecting is also going to go that way. It's going to be fleeting, there's no doubt. In the same way, when we look at things such as you know, a brand new gadget or a car or whatnot, there is definitely a certain moment of happiness. There's no doubt when you achieve it, there is this um, feeling of fulfillment for a certain amount of time. Um, for, yeah, uh, for a certain amount of time. Now, what happens then? And then the law of diminishing returns takes over. So yes, even for wealth or money, I agree that um, in the initial stages when we don't have money, Yes, we want it and that does give us happiness and it gives us happiness to a certain point. But after that point, it actually does not give you any more happiness. It's a law of diminishing returns and that kicks in at all time. Now, and that's true with things and that's true with many of uh, um, the things that we go after. So why, why are we doing this? Why can't we, uh, can we see that this pursuit of relentless pursuit over something um, of people, place, things, uh, situations and deriving happiness from that is actually futile, right? It's not going to work. It's, it's where humanity has been for all these years. But I think we can see even logically that it is futile. It's not going to work, right? And in terms of, um, in terms of a reality check, we can see around ourselves. We can see around um, not only in media and whatnot, or even people that we know, or, or derive this, um, derive evidence of this within our own lives, right? So we can ask ourselves some of these questions. In fact, um, if I'll just say one of them, I'll be happy when, I'm, when I reach a powerful position. The world's richest and the world's uh, most powerful man, the president of the United States, do you think he's the most happiest man? <laughs> Absolutely not, actually, right? So, um, and recently, 
in fact, uh, just yesterday while watching some, something on TV, uh, uh, it was Michael Phelps, the world's most decorated sportsman and a swimmer. He was on, uh, he was on an ad um, uh, for, I think it was called Talkspace, which is, a, which, is an, which is an app for mental fitness or mental health. And then as I read about him, I realized that he has written a lot about the fact that he is very, he is clinically depressed and that he is fighting to come out of it. And you read more and more about these things and you, you, there is a lot of evidence out there that a lot of things that we pursue and people who have already there in that particular dimension, people who are there, they are not exactly happy just because of having achieved that. Again, they were for some time, but then they're not um, uh, happy for a long period of time. Okay, that brings me to, can we redefine happiness? You know, we started by saying, I'm happy if and when condition is met. Can we strike out the latter part? And can we say, I'm happy? And then do whatever it is that we are doing, whatever it is that we are doing, whatever it is that we are pursuing, not for happiness, but from happiness. And that's the key difference here, right? So it's not like we are not going to be ambitious. We are not going to achieve things. We are not going to buy something or let all that happen. You can make money, everything. Let all that happen. Let all that happen. But can we not tie happiness to that, right? Can we do that because you're already happy, you're already full, and then you're doing it from that perspective. Can we do that, right? So uh, the, the, another example that's usually given uh, is that of the ocean. Uh, again, I think Swamiji mentioned this yesterday, and this is used quite a bit. Uh, no matter how many, um, the ocean is full already. It's, it's completely full. But, you know, no matter how many rivers pour into it or how much water is taken away from it, it is still full. There's nothing more to add and nothing more to take out, right? So can we be like that, right? Or can we seek happiness in something which is more permanent? We've been tying happiness to something which is fleeting, it's, things that change and that is beyond um, our control. But instead, can we tie it to something which is permanent? Because for, some, for long lasting, unconditional happiness, we need to tie it with something that's also long lasting and does not change. And to me, as we ask this question, um, what is that which does not change. So let me ask, actually go to this question and let you think about this. But if we want long lasting happiness, can we tie, does it even make sense to tie it or base it on uh, something that's transient? You want, to, you want long lasting happiness. You want to keep, you want to base it on something that does not change. That is stable, right? In the same way, can unconditional happiness comes from, come from something that can, is dependent on objects. So ask, uh, I would pose this as a question, which is, what is it that, that's one thing that does not change, that's eternal and that remains the same no matter what is around us, what the situation around us, right? So I, I would let you uh, think about this. So, but that's how I, uh, I felt when, uh, and that was the aha moment in some ways, saying that 
when we want long-lasting, unconditional happiness, um, what is it, what can we base that on? Okay, before we move, I, I just wanted to um, point out that this word, uh, that long-lasting, unconditional happiness state or the higher state of happiness or the sattvic happiness, as explained in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, the, these are some of the adjectives that are used to describe that state. It is not something that's not achievable for any of us. It is not something that's uh, 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 otherworldly in some way. What I understand it to be is when we are in the state of equilibrium, right? We started by saying how we feel currently that we are not in the state of equilibrium and we are constantly, rest we are restless because we want to get there. And when you reach there, that's that stable state um, where there is no pulling and pulling on any of the directions. And even there is pulling, you come back and settle down at ease with the um, with you yourself. Um, uh, in fact, Swamiji used the word ease multiple times yesterday. There is that ease. There is nothing pulling, nothing you want to take away, nothing you want to you want to um, add to yourself. That fulfilled state, right? And another word uh, that's used is samatvam. It's a beautiful word, uh, equanimity. Um, so, yeah, uh, again, some words that we can think about uh, when we think of this particular state. And we have all, we have all, believe me, we have all seen this. We have all gone through this. We feel, we have felt it at some point or the other. Just that it was fleeting. We felt it when we, uh, all of you are bitsians. Um, when you got into bits, I'm sure you felt it. You went through a phase where, wow, you, you, you got admission and you're about to get in there. You got your first job. I mean, there was the states. There were many, many occurrences when we felt the state. I know I, I have. Um, but it was all fleeting because it was based on something and the law of diminishing returns took over and it was gone before we knew it. But can we... Um, uh, change our pursuit of happiness towards this, towards achieving this kind of a state. And that's where the, the rest of the uh, spiritual journey for me started to fit in, saying, okay, now I understand what am I after? Uh, in, in the sense, I'm not even hankering for it, but I at least know what is the overall goal? Uh, where are we headed? It's, it's a trail map, right? I mean, when you're walking on a trail, you at least want to know where are you headed? and uh, where you are right now, and um, what does the path look like? Okay, now, um, and yet another key takeaway as I thought about this, um, again, it's mentioned very clearly in different places in different ways in the Gita and in other places. Um, just succinctly putting it here, it's that happiness and unhappiness is not based on places, things, or any of the other objects. It's actually in our own minds, right? It, 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 uh, it, this is, a, again, uh, an important aha moment that this is really, happiness and unhappiness is playing out in our own minds. Now, if you agree with me on this, then the next step is also true, which is that if it is in our own minds, then it's well within our control, isn't it? It's in our own minds. It's not based on something that um, 
you have to depend on others or something that's based on a, uh, on a thing or place or any of that. It is in our own minds. Why? Because all of those things eventually resolve in our mind. And our reaction to whatever it resolves to is what gives us happiness and unhappiness. So with that um, key takeaway, we'll come back to this, but this is one of the key takeaways. Now, which means then that to understand how to go about this and to achieve and hold on to this long lasting happiness and, and unconditional happiness, which is in our own minds, we need to understand our minds, right? We need to understand this a little bit better than how we know today. Now, um, yeah, and, and so um, how do we do that, right? How do we go about doing that? Obviously, again, uh, uh, this is where um, actually, before I go in there, uh, sh shall we keep going with the flow and wait until questions for the for later? Is that okay? Okay. All right. Um, I think I think that's that's the best thing what we should do. Yeah. But yeah. I suggest people yeah. also. So please, uh, please hold on to the questions. You note it down if possible. Um, yeah. Actually, I suggest. Yeah. Kishore, I suggest people should use the chat window to because you know sometimes we forget okay. the question. So you can Very good idea. Chat, when you look at the particular thing, when you get a question, please put it in the chat window. Yeah, and I'm not able to see it, so I'll come back. Oh, we can we can take it later, but at least it's documented. Perfect. What... Perfect. Thank you. Right. So with that in mind, um, the 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 so now we've kind of set up the where we're headed, right? If you're looking at it in uh, as a trail, we know we are. This is the point where we want to go, and now we we have. Um, uh, in business terminology, this is the OKR at the company level. Krishna will understand this uh, for sure because Google used OKRs. Now, this is a Sundar Pichai level OKR, uh, happiness, uh, unconditional, long-lasting happiness. And now we are coming back, uh, we're drawing back down from there and saying, since it's related to the mind, we want to understand the mind. Now, okay. Um, so, how do we experience mind? We experience mind as thoughts, right? So there are thoughts in the mind and that's how we know there is something called a mind, right? So um, what happens? Where do these thoughts come from? Again, the, the questions, it's, it's basically an inquiry, right? So the, and the inquiry goes like, goes typically by asking why and what and how, those kind of questions. Um, so, in this case, where do these thoughts come from and why do they come? You would have also seen that your thoughts are not always uh, voluntary, isn't it? It, um, it comes, but you didn't ask for it. More often than not, you didn't ask for it. But there are ways in which you can consciously create a thought, no doubt. But most of the thoughts, as we go around doing things in life, it just comes from somewhere. So where is that and, and why does it happen? So um, the way I understand this, again, explained very beautifully in the Yoga Sutras, right? Uh, I, I believe, and, and Bhagavad Gita. Uh, Yoga Sutras uh, definitely go in, into a, a, a lot of technicalities around uh, the, uh, uh, the functioning of the mind uh, functioning of thoughts, what type of thoughts, breaking those things down, why they happen, everything. Um, so I found it fascinating, actually. 
uh, and it was mind blowing when I first read that, for sure. So here, uh, here's my understanding of this. So uh, everything we know today, right? Everything we know um, comes from signals that come from the sensory organs, right? Whether uh, it's seeing, hearing, touch, uh, touch, smell, and taste. Now, by themselves, these sensory inputs are providing certain signals, but it's getting converted into, into imagery inside our mind, right? And that process is happening in the mind that's called perception, right? So when we, when we close our eyes, but we hear a bird chirping right outside right now, we, what we see in our mind is that of a, the image of a bird. Isn't it? Yeah, as in the same way, um, so there is direct perception based on sensory inputs. I heard a sound, I know what that is. And that's, that picture is coming together in the mind. Same thing for seeing, touch, and all that. So that is direct, and that's one level of, uh, of direct sensory perception. And then there is inference, which is um, a, a common example used is that of smoke. So you're driving by a, a hillside and you see smoke on the other side of the hill, you infer that there must be fire on the other side of the hill, right? So you haven't seen the fire, but it is a clear inference from there, right? But, so this is constantly happening, right? And this kind of um, uh, perception and um, uh, thoughts process, this is constantly happening. This is involuntarily happening. It's not something you can stop. As long as uh, sense organs are in touch with sense objects, there is this constant interaction and transaction that's happening, which you do not have control over. So when we do that, when we perceive things, what happens is every such perception leaves an imprint in the subconscious mind, right? I, I, I may have I've used this word called samskaras, uh, or in, 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 on the Vedanta side, we, we use uh, vasanas, right? So it leaves certain imprints. And the imprints typically are like, the, when we perceive something, we either like it, in, again, involuntarily, unconsciously, we uh, have a tendency to like it, or, or sometimes dislike it, or sometimes it's neutral, you, you, and, uh, and so on, right? The fact is that there is that um, a process that's happening. Okay, now, Again, uh, just to recap, we are in the process of understanding how our mind works, right? So let's take an example of a situation that's happened, right? So here I'm calling out a situation um, where it's a light loop. So uh, let's say we are in the office and it's three o'clock, 3 p.m. And you know that this is the time for a smoke, right? Because that's what we've been doing all the time. And so the body tells you, hey, Hey buddy, it's uh, three o'clock. You got to step out and uh, go for a smoke. Um, okay, so where did that come from? And those are a stream of thoughts that came in, uh, and and in the mind, and you engaged with those thoughts, right? So uh, I, so you started to engage with the thought. So the initial thought, which was small, starts to balloon into something bigger um, because during the process of engaging with the thought. Now, um, why did the thought first come in? It's because 
in the subconscious, it came in from the subconscious. We didn't consciously create that thought, right? You would agree with me that those thoughts were presented to you. Where did those come from? So um, it is explained that those come from the samskaras, right? Now those samskaras are buried deep inside our subconscious mind. And when a situation presents itself, some of those samskaras are activated. And from the, and the result of the samskaras getting activated is thoughts in the mind. Okay, now, now we got those thought, the initial thought, and we engage with it. And now it's ballooned into something bigger, snowballed into something bigger, to the point where now it's reached a state of desire of, yep, I need a smoke right now. And then we just, we respond to that um, and say, yes, I'm going to step out for that, which now become an action, which smoked. And we derive certain pleasure from that activity. Um, and that's fed back into our subconscious as something, yep, if I do this, I, I enjoyed it. There is a certain uh, level of sensual pleasure and that is reinforced in the samskaras. And now you are in this loop. Now this loop continues without you knowing that is one loop that started, um, um, has, has started gaining momentum over a period of time. And what does that look like in real life? Those are habits, if you really think about it. When we start doing an activity over a period of time, we continuously do that activity. It becomes a habit. And when that habit is followed for a long period of time, that becomes part of us, that defines us that becomes our character, that becomes our personality trait. Now, if you, if, and now that personality trait determines what we do. And that's exactly this loop here. Uh, I've just taken one simple example, but if you now layer this over everything that we do, uh, our natural tendency to, or the natural way of responding to things and so on, um, all of us are unique in how we react to the same situation, right? Not everybody goes out for a smoke when it's 3 p.m., as an example. Um, but we have developed our unique personality this way. And the personality or the personality traits are made up of samskaras deep inside our subconscious. And this is why we are all different because the type of samskaras, the, the intensity of each one, those are different. Just like the, the three, colors R, G, and B make up every single color that we see today. In the same way, these samskaras with uh, Rajas, Tamas, and uh, Sattva, these three gunas in the subconscious determine how our personality traits are different for each of us and defines why we have all this unique uniqueness in, uh, in nature. Right. Again, so that is again the, more on the theoretical side, um, but uh, in practical terms, it is about doing something or a period of time which becomes habit. Habit done over a period of time becomes character uh, or a personality trait or a mental um, tendency. And those tendencies determine, typically determine the type of thoughts the, which leads to action, which again leads to the tendency. And this is this loop. Uh, and that continues. And so let's take one more loop here, uh, which is a dislike loop. So again, you're presented with some situation. Somebody says something rude, right? Or, and you didn't expect that. You heard it through your senses. Uh, the mind perceives it. And 
what the mind, what you, the sense organs gave you is just some sound, isn't it? Just some sound. Is that sound good or bad? It's not good or bad. It's just sound. But how the mind perceived it is, is based on what? Why did the mind perceive that to be an insult and something you, that we did not like? Right? So we got a lot of thoughts of dislike as soon as we heard this input. And the input came in and, we, uh, and the response to that input were a lot of thoughts, as you can see here, of, of dislike. Now that got activated by our samskaras. So the samskaras activated and gave, um, gave rise to those thoughts of not liking what we heard. And then we engage with it, right? Immediately engage with those thoughts. And as again, that in this case led to anger. Now, if you think about it, the anger starts in the mind. And now the, it sends signals. Now, this is where I think you may have heard of these terms, sympathetic and parasympathetic. Uh, nervous system, right, or uh, nervous signals, the mind sends those, those signals, sympathetic signals, which tells the physiological body, we'll come to this in, in a bit, and the body generates certain hormones, it activates certain other, um, I don't know what else, but it does activate certain things. As we know, when an anger is expressed, we feel jittery, um, the body is probably shaking, depending on the intensity of the anger. Our, um, the blood vessels are probably popping out. Um, so many different things are happening. It started in the mind, but it results in expression in the body, right? And then all this happens, and in a crescendo, we hurl an insult. And this is action that's expressed outside. So we say something to somebody, we actually, worst case, do something as well, right? So, and now that's out there in the external world, we've heard that insult. Now, and you know, this action has a consequence. As, as we know, we have read this, every action is going to have a consequence. And in this case, the consequence could also be external to the other person and the relationship, sure, in the external world. But to ourselves, there is a consequence in that now we have reinforced this action in our samskaras. Now we have added some kind of a, uh, a feedback back to our samskara saying, this is how I react. And whether in some cases you derive ac actually derive pleasure by getting back at this person. And now that's reinforced in the samskaras. Now what happens the next time you face a situation like this, this is the automatic response then. Isn't it that when somebody says something rude, some, something rude, you, maybe you're walking somewhere and something happens. It, again, the response is that of anger and we go through this process and it keeps reinforced. Right. So over a period of time, we have collected a lot of these samskaras and not just in this life, but also from previous lives. And that's what we have today. Now, even even though we are all seekers and we, we are gaining this knowledge. These samskaras exist, not just from this life, from previous lives too. So what do we do about that, right? This is what we are. The, these are um, deeply seated personality traits in us. Okay, so the next part of the presentation is about the how. 
how to go about it or uh, taking us more and more into the practice. Uh, and I'll start this with, uh, I think, um, uh, the book that Rajesh wrote, which also has the same, um, I, I know he was inspired by, by this, uh, the chariot analogy. Uh, if you really, again, this was mentioned also yesterday uh, in, in one of the talks. So the Upanishads very beautifully, again, I've not read Katu Upanishad. I've read only this aspect of it. Um, Rajesh has uh, read this and we've spoken about it, but it's very beautifully uh, mentioned, which is that of a chariot analogy. There, it says the five horses are like the five sense organs, and the reins are the mind, right? Um, and the charioteer is the buddhi or the intellect behind those reins. And uh, the self is the passenger. The passenger doesn't do anything, but, um, but is the, uh, is the um, uh, uh, consciousness of the Atman, right? So what's happening today, uh, again, as we saw in the previous examples, is that most of our decisions, the reaction, everything is based on the senses pulling the mind, the mind kind of clouding the intellect, and then the actions take place. Just like we saw in the previous case with anger, right? So instead of what is, um, let me go to the next, where we are today is that sense organs are in charge. Right. When things happen in the world, sense organs send uh, inputs to the mind and it draws the mind towards a certain, uh, certain way of doing things, a certain action. And the mind um, mindlessly keeps going forward with that right? in many ways. Uh, and the intellect is clouded. So the decisions are taken from the emotional mind right? The actions that we take, whether we get angry and uh, spew out something bad or do something, uh, or if we like something, we react to it. And so, so that is happening at the level of the emotional mind. And intellect is not playing a big part in this. Where we want to go, right, is the highest level. But before that, there is this intermediate level where the intellect can be in charge. What is really... Um, the, the, the charioteer should be in charge of the reins and then tell the horses where to go, right? Isn't it? I mean, you don't want the horses to all decide by themselves where they want to go. Each horse can decide where it wants to go and then you're not going anywhere. Uh, instead, you want the intellect or the charioteer to be in charge, use the reins, tell the horses, this is where I want to go. That's where, uh, that's the direction change that we need to bring. And eventually at the highest level, the self is in charge in the sense that intellect is absorbed in self-knowledge is in charge. And then um, you're guided by something uh, uh, much higher, right? So that's, that's where we want to go. All right, now a lot of the practices are kind of rooted in those um, uh, basic uh, principles, I would say. So, I, uh, you know, as I started uh, hearing and listening to a lot of these talks, again, it's not been many, it, it's been a few years, but it's not compared to the amount of time that people spend on, uh, have spent on this, I've not been 
on this path for very long. So obviously, I, uh, my experiences may be slightly different. Um, but I, as I plunged myself into this, uh, I started reading, listening, whatever, um, however number of uh, books and uh, uh, talks and so on, right? Um, completed the, you know, Bhagavad Gita and uh, listened to Swami Paramatananda. So, uh, it took me a couple of years actually uh, to go through that um, on pretty much on a daily basis, and, but it did take a long time. And it was good, the fact that it took a long time. But at some point I started feeling that it, that it seems like theory, frankly. I mean, I, I remember going through that, pro, uh, that time frame and I felt it, it seems disconnected from my life in some way. And where do, where, does the, where do they meet? Um, I, I was trying to find an answer to that. And that's how I, uh, I said, what are we solving for? And, and uh, well, uh, we are today and I'm explaining uh, the path I went through. But, um, and I realized that, yes, many of these sects are talking about a level which is slightly higher right? We are not there yet. We need to get to a certain place where we can start to assimilate many of these things. So intellectually, there is a lot of, um, we, we understand a lot of these things, a lot of the principles men mentioned here. We are not able to, some of us are able to assimilate it, but we, where does it, even if we assimilate, how does that translate to our lives today uh, in the transactional world? So, um, that's when uh, I realized that they need to go hand in hand, theory and lab, even in, even at college, it, one can reinforce the other, right? So in some ways, it's almost like this for me, which is that knowledge feeds uh, or the theory feeds the practice and the experience actually verifies and confirms, affirms the knowledge. So there is this really nice loop that can happen where both of it can, both of them can coexist in a very nice way. So I, I, I've been trying to see what does that, what does that look like? So to me, it came down to two things. Uh, one is karma yoga, uh, no doubt. Uh, it's the most fascinating uh, concept to come out of Bhagavad Gita. Uh, uh, the way I've, uh, I see that as one of the um, core pillars that most of us can take, uh, take on, right? So the other thing that dawned on me is that most of us are not in uh, are not ready at this point to completely assimilate nana yoga right we are still in this preparation of the mind uh, stage um, which again bhagavad gita and uh, vedanta clearly points out saying that you need to have certain prerequisites before you take this on or you know, even if you take it on, make sure that those prerequisites are, are some things that you, you work on, right? It clearly states that. Um, obviously, many of us feel uh, oh, that to be a subtext and we go to the main text, we understand the theory, uh, and then there is this disconnect between the theory and what we experience in life. So um, how do we bridge that gap uh, is by working on those prerequisites, right? So while the knowledge part is continuing in parallel, can we also um, continue to 
do some of these things, which gives us that experiential uh, aspect of it. So to me, one part of it is Karma Yoga. The other part to me is the Ashtanga Yoga or the eight limbs of yoga as laid out in the Yoga Sutras. And we'll, we'll go through some of those things, right? And I see how they are both very closely related. And again, I'm, uh, I'm definitely not a purist going by one particular thing or the other. Uh, I would like to, the way I approach it is, can I take the best of anything that I read, right? If there is something that's useful, can I, can I take that on? Uh, does it apply? And um, so I'm not a purist. Uh, so in that sense, uh, um, the fact that I'm combining these two things from different schools of philosophy, uh, it might be a little of a dissonance, but uh, that's not how I see it. I think it's all finally coming down to the same thing as uh, we will all realize, no matter which path. But anyway, um, so uh, the Ashtanga Yoga, or the eight limbs of yoga, right? Uh, and Karma Yoga, we saw this. Okay, so what does that uh, Ashtanga Yoga look like? Yoga Sutras, again, um, lays out, to me, it, I found this to be a very um, methodical way of following something um, on a day-to-day -day basis on um, something that I can apply right here, right now in everything we do. And exactly the same thing with Karma Yoga. It's not asking us to go do something somewhere or be in some place or whatever we do, we do it with the Karma Yoga attitude, right? So that is a change of attitude, change of perception, change of how we do things, not to do something that's completely different from what we do. In the same way, the, um, even the uh, Ashtanga Yoga, for the most part, gives us that foundational kind of knowledge, um, some things to kind of guiding principles, if you will. And I feel they're both very kind of tied together in some way, and, and I'll, I'll explain in the coming slides, right? So for those, uh, those of you who may not have come across uh, Ashtanga Yoga, um, there are eight limbs starting with yamas and niyamas, uh, uh, loosely translated as don'ts and do's, but I, I, I don't think that's a good translation. Um, uh, niyamas are things to do. Yamas are things that uh, you don't have to do anything in particular, but it's a, um, you, yeah, it's a self-restraint in some way. And we'll see some of those examples. Asana is something we, we are all very familiar with. Um, that is preparing the body and then um, the breath and so on. So, uh, that is one. And I think this I shared earlier. And this is how I feel they kind of relate to each other. And this is uh, mostly around Karma Yoga. I know this is slightly small um, to see, and I apologize for that. But if you see Karma Yoga, we, we are very familiar with this. We have gone through it multiple times in this uh, group discussion. The right action, right speech, right attitude, right intention, all in, in under... Uh, the action side of things, and then right attitude towards the result of the action, right? We've seen that as Karma Yoga. Um, Karma Yoga also, uh, uh, actually, Swamiji uh, Bhumananda Tirthaji, uh, even when we attended his conference last year and even yesterday, he typically points out to uh, Samatvam as one of the core things. He, in fact, says that if there's one word you want to take away from Bhagavad Gita, it is Samatvam right, equanimity. And uh, um, so that's an important aspect. Uh, the skill in action, 
the issue of Arpana Buddhi is, a, is, a, is an important aspect. So we have, we have seen that. I'm not going to go into that. But how does it relate to um, yamas and niyamas? How does it relate to in practice? How do we know that what is right action? And that's where, to me, uh, it started to fall in place a little bit, right? So how do we know what is right speech? At a certain level, we all know uh, because we are built in with that core dharma, as I think Rajesh pointed out in one of the threads here, which is that we know at a core level what is right and what is not. That is for sure. But yet, we often do things that um, are not in accordance with that core dharma that we are built in with, right? So why does that happen? So given, given the fact that we do that, all the time, can there be more guidance for us so that we can get back to that core dharma, which we, we know, but we don't follow it, right? So can there be some more guidance associated with that? Can I develop some qualities that will help me with that? And can I get rid of certain other qualities, uh, all of which together come to help me with following that core dharma that is built in me and in, in us, Right, that core dharma is built in us. That will help us with the karma yoga side. Okay, now, uh, and those guiding principles, I found them. Yes, uh, Bhagavad Gita also has twenty odd qualities of uh, uh, of that we should some qualities that we should absorb and some qualities we should get rid of. Uh, I just found uh, so the very similar things. I would say um, I, just that I, I I love the way Ashtanga Yoga points this out in, in a framework. So it's pretty much the same thing. So what does this trail map look like? And we remember, uh, we started with, uh, uh, with this unconditional long lasting happiness as the end goal. And, but as we break things down, uh, uh, you know, coming, so this is a roadmap or a trail map, if you will, uh, that I, um, I started seeing in the sense uh, one of the things is that I realized everything is connected. Uh, and I'll explain more of what I mean by that. Um, because of which, we cannot think of this end goal without actually thinking of the anatomical body, right? The, the physical body. So if you see the leftmost, we have the healthy body, which is important. There's a physiological body, right? And uh, some of you may be familiar with this. These are the different koshas, right? So um, all of those things need to be in the performing at a, a certain level, right? And they all need to be brought up to a certain level. So whether it's physiological body with prana, um, with sense organs being you know, under control, we spoke about this, the horses should be under the control of the mind, not the other way around. Um, and the mind, for the mind, the important thing that it needs to be able to stay calm. Again, we looked at all the adjectives that are used, uh, whether it's calm, stable, still, um, equanimity, equanimous, and so on. Intellect uh, needs to be sharp. It needs to be, it, uh, needs to be, it needs to be clear, right? So all of those things together eventually, uh, combined with the knowledge, 
right? That we are, which is going on in parallel, remember? The knowledge aspect is going on, or the theory aspect is going on in parallel. Eventually lead us to the state which I'm calling as X percent happier, right? Um, uh, a state somewhere in between the more higher state and where we are today. Slightly more stabler state is what I, I would put it. So I, I was inspired by this book um, uh, by Dan Harris called 10% Happier. Um, and he, that book is, in the, is uh, about mindfulness and so on. Anyway, um, but I found that title to be pretty catchy. So instead of calling it 10% happier, which uh, 10 is a random number, I said X percent happier. Uh, it depends, each of us might experience it very differently. Um, but at some point along the path, um, uh, the discriminative power develops, um, helped by the knowledge, uh, and eventually a higher level of vairagyam also develops. Um, uh, the unattachedness, the uh, dispassion, that develops. And at, at which point you start to become more inward focused than outward focused. Uh, and when I say focused, in terms of looking for happiness, right? So um, you, this, the, uh, the mind that's constantly looking outwardly for happiness starts to, starts to or begins to look inward, right? Because it, it is, why? Because of the discriminative power. And what is the discrimination in this case? And the mind starts to get convinced or the intellect and the mind, I'm using it uh, kind of jointly here. Um, it starts to understand that, that the happiness that you get from places, people, things is fleeting. And the, the happiness um, that you derive that for long lasting happiness is not going to be from anything that is fleeting, but it needs to go from something, it needs to come from something that's stable and that does not change and starts to think or starts to look inward, right? Um, and that's the discriminative power as I understand it, right? And then eventually at some point with knowledge, with Nana Yoga, some point you reach the higher pinnacle of um, the state of moksha, which again, there are various ways in which that's explained. Uh, one simpler key takeaway for me was a, a state where you feel you reach long-lasting, unconditional happiness, right? So uh, that to me is kind of the roadmap as I understand it. Okay, now, um, out of this, one of the goals, one of the key aspects of this roadmap is, is with respect to the mind. And we'll come to that. And as I said, everything is connected, but let's start by stating what the goal of the mind is, which is that of uh, a calm, mind again that's how that higher state of happiness is also explained as we saw in some of the um, in the word cloud i had, uh, put out earlier that's how it's explained and one of the characteristics is that of a calm mind and lo and behold in the yoga sutras in the right in the second sutra uh, yoga says the definition of yoga itself one definition from the yoga sutras classic definition yoga Yoga chitta vritti nirodaha, saying yoga is a cessation of the modifications of the mind. It has, uh, it's a simple thing which defines yoga in, in four words, in Sanskrit words, but the commentary of this particular verse goes in 
I don't know, into pages and pages, right? Different ways in which people have uh, explained this. Um, but the key takeaway uh, with respect to what we are talking now is that, hey, yoga has actually called this out, called out having a still mind as, it, as yoga itself, right? So uh, it's not just the goal of yoga, that itself is yoga. It's saying it's the goal of yoga as well as yoga itself. So yoga uh, is defined both as the practice, it uh, is also yoga, the end goal is also yoga. So in other words, you are in yoga when you, your mind is very still or very streamlined, right? So that's the state of yoga, but the practice of getting there is also yoga, right? So, um, so it was very encouraging to see that, yeah, we arrived at the fact that mind is the most important thing. And out of that, we want to achieve a still and calm mind. And here, yoga has acknowledged that and by saying that, that itself is yoga. Okay, so um, here we are with trying to achieve that goal of a calm mind, right? And soon we'll all realize that all these different layers that we spoke about, the physical body, anatomical body, physiological body, prana, the life force and other forces inside us, whether it's digestion, um, the heart is beating and breathing and everything connected to the physiological body. Uh, and then the sensory organs, mind, intellect, they are all connected. Just to give us uh, some examples that we can explore ourselves, you know, what we eat, taking a very simple example, right? In the night, let's say we overeat in the night and we eat the wrong type of food um, or the more, let's say the rajasic type of food, which is um, very spicy and uh, and so on, it's hard to sleep. When we don't sleep, we end up the next day with a much lower level of energy, which is expressed as energy, but the prana is lower. And that determines what we choose to do that day. Um, we make bad choices coming out of that, which has its own, and every action or choices we make has its reaction. It may have bad result, which ends up causing restlessness in the mind. So, in, in, a, in a very, uh, actually, you can connect this very easily that it would have been because you, we made the wrong choice in what we ate. In the same way, uh, whether it's excessive social media or, uh, or take the, the, the mind being stressed already. Now, we talk about stress and anxiety. Uh, so stress is at the level of mind. Anxiety is at the level of the body, is how I kind of interpret it. But again, uh, I, I'm not a doctor and I'm not gone, I've not read too much into that. But the fact is that the stress that happens in the mind affects the body. And we know this, right? We know that when we are under stress, we know that our body doesn't move. It is unable to do what it's supposed to do in an in a optimal way. We are compromised at that point, right? So, um, and we know that we're not breathing well, our breath is very shallow um, and it eventually, or a period of time, if we are in that state for a long period of time, we know that that's going to have a lot of bad, um, it's going to cause ill health and we eventually will get some other diseases or the other, right? Because the physiological body is not um, uh, working well. Uh, because to handle that stress, 
the body is generating all kinds of hormones and giving us all kinds of inputs so we can deal with that stress, right? So um, again, that's how we've been built with the fight or flight response. Again, we'll not go into that. Uh, there's a lot of material around that. Uh, but the fact is, uh, key takeaway again, is that mind and body are related. And if you see the last one, which is breath and mental activity are very, very closely related. It, I, 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 it almost seems like breath and mental activity are connected to the same shaft, actually. You'll see this in meditation. As, the, um, as, you, uh, as thoughts go down in meditation, as thoughts activity starts to die down, you'll see that the breath has lowered to a large extent. You're, you're hardly breathing. You're hardly breathing. You, you, you feel it, but the breath is so faint at this point, even the, when the thoughts go down, right? And the other way is true, which is by bringing down the breath, slowing down the breath, you can reduce the mental activity. So they're tied to the same shaft, right? So it, um, and, and, and what I've read is that this prana, the same prana powers the breath in the physiological level and powers thoughts in the mental level. So it's the same thing. We, we are talking about the same source of energy that's driving both of them. And <clears throat> so, so you have here, a, uh, and this is what the Buddha found out, right? That by looking and closely observing the breath, you can closely observe what's going on in the mind because they are interconnected so, so deeply. And this is also what uh, uh, Pranayama talks about, the fact that by managing the breath, you can manage your uh, more subtle mind. The breath is, a, uh, breath is obviously more uh, something physical, more that we can manage. And but using that as a lever, you can, or a knob, you are able to control what is going on in the subtle mind in terms of the amount of thoughts. You can reduce it to a certain extent. And that's why breath is very important. Um, and this also goes on to, this is proof to me that all of these layers are so intricately connected. So given that, we can't just ignore one aspect of it and focus on, on just meditating. I've heard this from others saying, just go meditate. Um, yes, I tried that too, but it was very hard. I couldn't sit for more than five minutes in meditation uh, for the longest period of time. Um, uh, this was happening, uh, I was at Google at that time and every afternoon there were meditation rooms here and there and that was the buzzword and I was caught up with that for sure, um, thinking that I could just do that. It was hard for me. I don't know about uh, many others. Um, uh, I know meditation is a high, I understand meditation to be, uh, to be a higher level of uh, activity, um, but which, which has its own prerequisites. So I cannot ignore many of the other things and just focus on, on one thing. I realized healthy body comes from it as, as an example, uh, is one of the prerequisites. And there are various things. I'll not go into deep into each of these, but as you can see, um, and the same thing with uh, the physiological body, um, in terms of the prana, uh, one way is through, um, one way prana is expressed is through breath. So we can use that as, as um, um, uh, a, an instrument or as a, as a lever to control the amount of prana. 
Okay. And in terms of sense organs, again, this is an important one. Uh, th there is a step in the Yoga Sutras, one of the limb is called Pratyahara. Basically what you eat through the sense organs, in, in a way, what we, uh, what we see, what we hear, everything is like food for the sense organs or food for the mind, because whatever goes through the sense organs is, inter is perceived in the mind, as we saw earlier. So this is a constant uh, fire hose of information getting into the mind. So in various ways, by we are affecting the mind one way or the other by excessive exposure to, um, uh, to stimuli from, through the sense organs, right? So that is an important one uh, as well. Now, um, and then, um, so yeah, so it, it, it is a holistic thing that we need to take into account. So let's see how some of this kind of plays out at the broad level. So again, it's a, it's a, it's a loop, but I'll try to get in, in uh, from the leftmost side here into this loop. So some of the, um, you know, in, a, in daily life, in transactional life, we um, are faced with different situations. We make various choices during the day, right? Um, we, are, uh, we, we act on certain things, we say a lot of things and so on. There's a lot of thoughts in our mind. Um, so all of this, um, if done right, if there was the right action, right speech, right intention, right attitude, leads to a calmer mind, right? Because we have done the right thing. There is, there's no feelings of um, uh, guilt or, or, or jealousy or something or anger and other things. It leads to a more calmer mind. If assuming a lot of these choices that we made um, are in accordance with the Dharma, right? So it leads to a calmer mind. A calmer mind actually is a prerequisite for meditation, for focus, dharna or dhyana, to go deeper into that. It's a prerequisite. A calmer mind is capable of doing that. But when we start meditating and we, um, we go deeper, um, we develop awareness. So that's one of the key benefits that we derive because in meditation, what we do is we observe the thoughts that are in the mind. We observe everything. We, um, we are in this highly vigilant state of observing a lot of things. So we are able to slow down the thoughts in the mind and go deeper into the intellect and deeper beyond the intellect, right? So we are able to uh, do this in a, in, a, in a systematic way during the time that we meditate. But what we're doing is, we, it is like the gym. You go to the gym uh, for an hour every day, um, you're building up uh, your physical body in such a way that now in, outside of the gym, you're able to perform. So uh, uh, in the same way, during meditation, we practice this, um, this close awareness, close observation, and then later on in, in daily life, uh, when we are faced with situations, that awareness kicks in. We have that, right? So um, now that awareness enables us to make the right choices. Why is that? Why is awareness required? Because as we saw in the previous, when we, uh, in one of those slides, it said, hey, when situations arise, when things arise, we are flooded with thoughts and we engage with the thoughts 
right away. Again, this particular picture that I showed earlier, but with one difference here. And let me point out that difference. So again, say somebody says something rude, we perceive it right out here. And depending on our, what the samskaras are in, our, in us right here, right now, we get those thoughts. But this is where the difference is. Now, with awareness, we are aware that the mind is filled with certain thoughts, right? There's a, there is a, a, a lot of dislike thoughts or negative thoughts that have come in and just flooded my mind, but I am aware. Now, that's the key thing here. Because otherwise, we saw that it's a loop. You got to break that loop somewhere. Where do you get in and break that loop and insert something else? Otherwise, the loop is just going to go on and on and on forever. And that is what is called samsara, right, in many ways, um, uh, in, a, in, in a different way. Uh, I know there's birth and death and other things, but um, we need to break that loop somewhere. How do you get in and break that loop? Now, that is where this concept of an antidote comes in. So it says, uh, again, yoga uh, and the Gita, they both explain this, uh, is that as soon as you deliberately, uh, uh, sorry, you instead of engaging with the thought that was our, uh, our natural thing to do earlier and which resulted in anger and other things, now we engage with it, not to engage with the thought, but we are aware of it and we deliberately generate opposite thoughts, right? So that's what is happening here. Uh, I've tried to visualize it. I'm, it may or may not have come through, but the fact that you're neutralizing some of those disliked thoughts or the negative thoughts that have come into your mind, have flooded your mind, instead of engaging with it, we replace it with positive thoughts and with the intention of neutralizing. Now, if you have followed mindfulness, for instance, mindfulness says, become aware of those thoughts and let it go and see that that is transient, that goes away, right? And that is fleeting and that will go. So mindfulness says, just observe them. That is fine too. Yoga says yet another thing, which is observe them, but also in at various times, engage uh, by you know, uh, deliberately insert opposite thoughts, right? Generate opposite thoughts. Now, when you generate that, the anger that resulted, which was uh, uh, earlier, leads to a more calmer mind, which leads to, uh, which allows the intellect to respond. Now the mind is calm, so you're able to go deeper and derive that action from the intellect. Now you're letting the charioter hold the reins. The charioter is holding the reins at this point, and hence the action that comes out of that is, is based more from deeper inside you. So the action might be to gently correct them or remind them to be more respectful or to walk away. To walk away from uh, the situation for now with the intention of correcting it later. Whatever that choice might be. But the choice is coming from the intellect, from the charioter, right? It's not coming from uh, the, the horses drawing you out. Instead, it's coming from something deeper. Now, the other magic thing that happens when we start doing this is that now we are reinforcing this new behavior back into the subconscious. Now, this new behavior is reinforced as some skaras in the subconscious, right? And as we start doing this, practicing this over a period of time, we are neutralizing the samskaras 
in, in an indirect way because we do not have access to the samskaras directly. So we indirectly affect the samskaras by this positive reinforcement in a different way, right? Now, psychologists might call this in a different way. I don't know what that is. I have not read too much about it. Maybe there is, but this, is, this concept is very clearly explained in the Yoga Sutras as Pratipaksha Bhavanam, right? So uh, uh, this is uh, verse 33 from the second chapter of the Yoga Sutras. Vitarka Badane Pratipaksha Bhavanam, right? Badane, I apologize for my uh, lack of knowledge of Sanskrit, but um, that's what it means, which is when disturbed by negative thoughts, opposite positive thoughts should be employed. Right? So that's one definition of Pratipaksha Bhavana. The second one is invite thoughts. The positive thoughts can be a direct opposite, and we'll talk about that, a direct opposite of the negative thought, or it could be thoughts of the after effects, potential after effects of engaging with the negative thoughts. So a thought could be something like, hey, wait a minute, if I engage with this negative thought, I'm going to become angry, and then I become angry. I don't know what I say or do. It's beyond my control. I am deluded. And hence, what I say or do may have repercussions. I know that. Do, you, do I really want to be angry? The after effects of th that process is not something I want to deal with. And not only that, the after effects, it's not only affects others external to me, it affects me. Uh, first and foremost, it affects me because it leaves me in a state, in my body in a state uh, that I don't like uh, when I'm angry. It leaves us in a state of um, disturbed, it, it, we, we feel disturbed, both at the mental level, the body is shaking, um, my throat uh, is parched, I, I can feel some, um, a lump in my throat. I don't like that. So the thought could be, do you want that? If you engage with this thought, that's what is going to happen. Do you want it? That is a Pratibhaksha Bhavanam too, right? So there are two ways. One is to generate the exact opposite thought. The other is the after effect. Very important. Uh, 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 this is again, a big aha moment for me from Yoga Sutras that something like this exists that can be, that's applicable right here, right now to everything we do, right? So, um, uh, uh, please do read up on this more. Um, this, everything else that I'm going to say is based on this concept or this fundamental concept. And then it goes on to um, uh, uh, Patanjali, Sage Patanjali goes on to give us some examples with another sloka. It's a long sloka, but I didn't put it here. But it gives four examples. It's just four examples, but there are many more. And he says that it is like this, right? And then gives four examples. So he says, uh, and this goes to the first one, which is the direct opposite thought. When you meet, uh, he says there are four keys. There are only four types of people that you will uh, encounter in this world. They are happy people, unhappy people, virtuous and non-virtuous, right? So, and he uh, goes on to say that, how do you deal with each one of them? So with happy people, you develop an attitude of friendliness, right? You share in the person's happiness and good fortune, whatever good fortune they're going through right now, you share in that and you develop an attitude of friendliness. 
again, as I say in the why, um, uh, Swamiji explains, actually Guru Paranandji explains very well, this reduces jealousy, right? When we see happy people, you know, especially today, this is very prevalent, right? Uh, previously, we probably knew uh, fewer people around us, but now because thanks to social media, you get to see so many different things from all around the world. Um, and this is this constant flood of information that we see. And, and more often than not, you only see people uh, uh, in their vacation, in their having a drink with their friends and doing all these wonderful things. And we end up thinking, why is, am I the only one who doesn't have that kind of a happy life? Um, that's the kind of feeling I think a lot of our teenagers, for instance, feel uh, for uh, it because that's what they're exposed to. Um, so this becomes a bigger problem uh, today than ever before. And the fact that it was prevalent even 5,000 years or, or 3,000 years ago, um, it, to the point where he had to point this out, right, in, in the Yoga Sutras, uh, tells me that even then there was this. And now just multiply it by, I don't know, how many factor orders of magnitude uh, more today than before. So how do we deal with that? The fact is we cannot change what is around us. It's going to be hard, but we can develop this attitude of friendliness. So the feelings of jealousy, again, what is that feelings of jealousy? That's the deep seated samskara, right? That reduces or gets neutralized. Same thing with unhappy people. People who are unhappy are going through something in their life. Develop an attitude of compassion towards them, right? Compassion towards them. Now, um, by again, telling ourselves uh, of an opposite thought, because there might have, we might have a tendency to look at uh, uh, the, uh, um, the misfortune of somebody and say, aha, um, you deserved it, or I'm better. I, I know I don't, I don't, that there's a feeling of arrogance and superiority that might potentially come out of that. We want to reduce that, right? So by developing uh, um, an attitude of compassion uh, towards this person or persons that are going through this, and by remembering a time we went through it ourselves, we, we help build that attitude of compassion. With virtuous people, develop an attitude of delight and joy uh, to reduce the tendencies of envy or, um, yeah, of envy. Uh, and by wanting to develop those um, qualities ourselves, right? That could be a positive way of looking at it rather than developing, um, becoming envious of that. With wicked people, this is, uh, this is a potential for uh, discussion in, in, in different ways because it says, uh, with people who are doing something wrong. It, it says to develop an attitude of indifference and disregard. It is not saying don't act when you see something wrong done uh, right in front of you. It is not saying that uh, very clearly. That is not the case, right? And that's where uh, karma yoga and there's a right action to do the, uh, when you see certain things that are being done wrong. No doubt about that. But internally, develop that attitude of indifference because you cannot change those people. You know, it's very hard and that's not our duty. You can try in certain ways, but internally remember, be firm in the fact that that is their, um, 
that's something that they need to work on at some point, right? It's hard for us to give them um, a bashan and say, hey, uh, you know, go change yourself. It's not going to happen. So let's understand that. And it's saying uh, uh, develop that attitude of indifference so that our, um, you know, if our goal is to stay calm, we need to be able to develop this attitude. So, and the other part is obviously not influenced by their actions and uh, become non-virtuous ourselves. Okay. Um, I think, uh, yeah. So again, moving on with, uh, so th that's a very important concept in the Pratipaksha Bhavna. And this is a slightly different topic now. Again, understanding the, in the con overall context of understanding the mind. Oh, by the way, how are we doing on time? I have no idea. Uh, okay. Uh, oh, shoot. We're almost at the end of it. I didn't realize. You're almost at the end of it, Kishore. How many more slides do you have? Uh, um, uh, I'll probably need just 10 more minutes if everybody's okay. Okay. If everybody's okay, we can do uh, 10 more minutes and then spend some time. I yeah. have a stop at maybe 8, 8 a.m. Pacific time because I had to get into a, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I, I'll try to, uh, um, uh, most of it should be done in 10 minutes or so. So um, again, in the context of understanding the mind, if you really split that into what the mind uh, does, that is, the, that is the perception we spoke about. And then the mind is the doer, right? Which uh, enables us to pick the right actions and speech and so on. That is the receiver aspect. When we perform an action, what we receive back is also in the mind. Says there is this, it is a storehouse of the samskaras in the uh, subconscious, and it is also the instrument for meditation and for higher states of the mind. And to uh, to realize um, the higher knowledge, the mind is also employed for the same thing. So in many ways, we are understanding the mind, but by using the mind itself to understand the mind, right? So it's a very meta um, way of looking at it. Um, so by splitting it in different roles. Remember the, the chart where we said karma yoga uh, with right action, attitude, intention, and so on. We can, we can now start to see which aspect of the mind or which role of the mind relates to what, right? So um, the doer, for instance, are we picking the right action or the right attitude, right intention, and so on. So why, are we, uh, uh, why this helped me is that um, it, the practices could also be related to uh, one of these roles of the mind. Okay. So with that, um, um, we'll go to the one of the most important uh, quality of the yama uh, that is mentioned in the Ashtanga Yoga, which is that of ahimsa. We all know ahimsa to be nonviolence, uh, uh, and and but there is more to it um, because there is nonviolence at the level of body which is obviously something we, uh, uh, it's easier to do for adults. Um, at the level of speech, are we saying things that harm somebody else, uh, both consciously and unconsciously, right? Um, at the level of speech, that's very, very hard, as we all know, right? And at the level of thought, at the level of thought is the hardest. Can we, uh, do we generate thoughts that are harmful towards others? Because the thoughts themselves are not in direct control, right? As we saw earlier, 
But if, so when do, when do those thoughts don't come? Unless we, the samskaras have been neutralized, right? Because the samskaras are the ones that generate those thoughts. So it's important. So we won't get those thoughts unless the samskaras are fairly neutralized, right? So that's the toughest one to do, right? So, but this is how it's laid out at the level of body, speech, and thought. I would encourage you to um, think about it, read about it. But this is an example where actually, I, I know Swamiji says about this, where it's like when you pursue this one quality of ahimsa in, at the level of body, speech, and mind, uh, and thought, you, it comes with many other qualities, just like when you pick, a, pick noodles from a plate, many, the, the whole thing comes with it, right? Um, because this is an antidote for many undesirable qualities. And that's why this is considered like the, the pinnacle or, this, uh, or, the, or the height of the, of the first yama, right? Because it is an antidote for dvesha, which is hatred, um, uh, anger, and then, and all the way down to, you know, even a careless behavior uh, or careless in speech and so on, right? So um, it, by following this, it leads to the right action, right speech, and right intention, right? Which again, are things that we want to do in karma yoga, which states that. But how, when we said right action, what is right action? A right action is something in this context of ahimsa that does not harm somebody. What is right speech? Right speech is something that does not harm somebody, right? Again, within the context of ahimsa. So um, again, I'll, I'll probably skip through this part. We, we spoke about this uh, as a, uh, we also spoke about this uh, with Pratipaksha Bhavanam, where we said that when awareness is there, you counter the thoughts by saying, uh, when somebody insults you, um, you observe your reaction and then intellect pitches in and says, you insert a new thought into the Pratipaksha Bhavanam, which says, maybe they're having a bad day. Um, I will let it pass for now, right? Or you can say, if I get angry, um, I am going to hurt myself first before I spew anger on them and make them, uh, you know, harm them. I'm going to harm myself more, right? So the example given is that of uh, acid. Um, so if you hold acid in your uh, hand with the intention of uh, harming somebody, something with it, you're the one who's going to get burnt first before you burn some, something else with it, right? So uh, anger is like that. It's going to harm you first at the level of mind, at the level of body. And to come out of that takes time, right? Um, once you get angry. So do we want to do that? That is the opposite thought uh, that we can generate with Ahimsa and over a period of time, we can uh, pick the right actions through that. Okay, now, and just an interesting anecdote here. It says, you know, Yoga Sutras talks about different benefits that um, you gain by um, following certain practices. And in this, it says, all hostilities cease in the presence of somebody who is uh, grounded in ahimsa. And then you may have seen pictures like this, where there is a sage or a, or a saint uh, sitting in, in meditation. And, and there are, there is a, a lion on one side, there is a goat on the other side. The whole point being, see here, it says, here is a, a cow 
uh, and a, a small baby uh, lion is actually drinking milk from the cow. Whereas here, there is a cow that's uh, uh, doing the same from the lion. It says they coexist. Even the natural tendency or the natural tendency of these animals are to, uh, are to be violent to, uh, you know, for a lion to be violent towards the cow. Even that goes away is the point that they're trying to make. Okay. Uh, the other things, I, um, again, I'll go a little quickly here um, because the basic concept is the same, just that there are different things around, around this. Sp uh, satyam, again, an important one uh, with, uh, uh, with truth. Now, I find this to, uh, to be important because we often think how we always have to say the truth. Yes, that is true. Um, we try to do that. Uh, we try to avoid hearsay and gossip and things like that. We say only what we perceived or inferred correctly, right? That's all, that's the right speech. And then it says, if by saying that truth, it's going to harm somebody, right? Then you have options of not saying it, right? Or if you're forced to say it anyway, but you know that by telling the truth, you're going to harm someone, then you can even lie. It was surprising to me when I, uh, when I saw this, but it makes sense, right? So the doctor-patient scenario is given as a good example here. The patient is not able to take the bad news that they, uh, you know, that uh, it's, it's a terminal form of cancer or whatever. And then the, but doctor knows that the patient cannot take it. So the doctor says, you're going to feel better in a few days. We're going to go through this uh, thing. And, but the doctor knows that's not going to be the case. But as long as it's not done with the intention of self-benefit, that's actually still a good, uh, good thing to do, right? Why are we saying this and what is the benefit? It avoids conflicts in the mind. Because um, when, we, when we say something, and we, uh, we don't now feel that, hey, I lied. But I lied because with a higher ben uh, um, intention of not harming you. And that reduces the conflict in our mind. Why did I lie? There's a reason. There's an intention behind it. As long as that intention was right, then that's okay. Right? So that was a revelation to me. And that was, uh, I thought was very useful. Uh, and same thing with uh, uh, non-stealing. Again, Yamas are described as in the in the opposite and so I, i'm not going to that but that, that's how it's uh, uh, explained because you don't have to do anything um to uh, uh, unlike um neymar's where you follow something here it's not doing something right so i'll let you read this it's basically an anti antidote against greed uh, brahmacharyam which is moderation we spoke about this a little bit um, uh, as it applies today for us as householders, we can think of it as moderation in what we do, right? Uh, back then, there was uh, uh, there were other things like celibacy, which apl applies to a certain um, uh, community of users of uh, 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 of sannyasis, and, and um, but as it applies to us, we can think of it as moderation. Um, uh, this is also. Um, an antidote against uh, increased levels of tamoguna in us, leading to lethargy and lower prana, 
right? Again, as we know, all of these things are interconnected and becomes very important. Aparigraham is non-accumulation. Uh, to only use things, there's a lot of everything's available to us. Um, uh, we have, uh, you know, for instance, um, we, we consume so much from nature. Can we just do, can we just use the most and the minimum from nature without disrupting it too much? We are already disrupting it in, I don't know, how many different ways. But can we, can we as individuals just be very aware of what we use and what, uh, how much we, uh, you know, the more we accumulate things, um, obviously we are affecting um, not only ourselves because there is suffering involved in actually uh, making purchases. Uh, there is maintenance and there is suffering when we lose things, right? All of these things eventually lead to uh, a very restless mind. So in that sense also, it's important. Um, okay. Now this, uh, the, the second uh, reason, uh, way it's explained Aparigraham is the doership, uh, which leads to antidote against arrogance. Okay. Okay. So I'm almost at the end of it. Um, uh, there are only two more slides. The Shaucham, so Niyamas are things that it, it wants us to do. And I was surprised uh, when I first read uh, the Yoga Sutras that it says, uh, calls out uh, cleanliness as the number one. Uh, so anything that's is typically at the, at the first one to be mentioned is, is where they want it to be, they want highlighted as the most important one, right? Uh, and that's typically been the pattern. So I was surprised that Shaucham was at the top of the Niyamas. And uh, there are two interpretations uh, and again, by different people who have interpreted this. Uh, Dr. Edwin Bryant in his Yoga Sutras book calls out the different interpretations from many others, including Shankara, including uh, Vignana Bhakshu and others. There are two different uh, interpretations of this. One is cleanliness at the level of uh, what is around us, environment, body and mind. Says, so, um, so the way it's explained is that anything just left by itself will deteriorate, right? So if we go out of our house for two months and come back, it is not livable as it is, right? We'll have to clean the place before we can come in and live there again. Uh, so even if nothing has been done, it deteriorates. So to maintain everything at a certain optimal level, there's a lot of effort involved in keeping it at that level. And that is important because this consistent regular effort to keep things at a certain level means that we, it's a guard against tamoguna or, or the lethargy that will set in. So by cleanliness, we are getting to that point. The second thing aspect of it, the way others have looked at it is um, the, from the aspect of purity. It says um, they go at a, at a very gross level. Uh, if you really think about it, the, the explanation given, but it, it forces you to think of the human body as impure. Um, and, and to see uh, at different levels that the human body is impure. And why do they do that? With the intention of, an, of developing an antidote against lust, lusting against uh, lust towards other human bodies, right? So uh, two different, completely different interpretations of this particular one, but it generates uh, that antidote, right? Against the Moguna and, and against lust. Um, tapas being austerity, we've spoken about this. Uh, um, and uh, the key uh, thing from Bhagavad Gita again here is 
something that feels like uh, very hard to do in the beginning, but with very positive results in the end, right? Poison in the beginning, nectar in the end. Um, uh, basically generates us, gives us the mental strength to withstand the pain and suffering um, and gain the control over sense organs. So I leave you with this uh, last slide, which is that um, is again from the Yoga Sutras, which says, what is practice? Practice is not something where we follow something here and then 10 days later, something else. Um, it needs to uh, be continuous over a long period of time without any interruption and with a value. It's not being forced. It shouldn't be feel forced. It should come from within you. And you should see the value of this, right? So that you can do this consistently over a long period of time. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll, I'll stop here. Uh, oh yeah, okay. Uh, I should just mention FIR. Uh, just again, with any kind of objective we, we even take up at work, for that matter, we want to measure and see where we are with that. Uh, and to me, FIR is that metric uh, where, yeah, how do we know we are making progress uh, along this path? How do we know, um, you know, even on a trail map, you kind of know where you are. There will be a small map that tells you, here's where you are. You are at the two mile mark and eight more miles to go, right? So uh, the FIR is something that we can apply on ourselves and see has the frequency of, let's say, getting angry or uh, jealous and has that reduced? Has the intensity lowered? And how quickly are you are able to come back and recover back to the stable state, right? So we can measure ourselves. We don't have to tell anybody. It is something for us to see. It just gives us a, um, a um, it's a metric to see where we are, okay? Now with that, um, uh, I'll just say that, uh, but leave you with this slide, which is everything is connected. There's uh, practice uh, along various dimensions. Um, and um, uh, I, I, I wish all of you, um, I hope uh, you know, it is useful what I shared and uh, I wish you all uh, the very best. Thank you, I'll stop here. Awesome, Kishore, awesome. Thank you so much. It is such a wonderful presentation. We have to give a, you know. Yeah, thank you. And uh, it's uh, really, really amazing. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I think uh, we really don't have a any time to discuss, but I think it requires a lot of discussion. But at the same time, we probably will have to allocate one more revision uh, session next week so that we can revise this and also finish the remaining topics. I think um, my request would be that, you know, we probably spend maybe four or five minutes or something to ask some top level questions that to Kishore and then talk about it. But then majority of it, we will probably will have to do it uh, uh, next week when all of us are there because I know many of us are running running late already. Happy to do that. Yeah. No. Lovely. I really enjoyed it. Beautifully done. Thank you. I, uh, Kishore, out of the world, right? You know, especially for starters, I think the way you laid it out and there is loads that we need to consume, take back, uh, meditate upon, right? But put it very simply, practically, I think in a consumable fashion. Uh, can't thank you enough. Thank and you I would say don't even take the top four to five, I mean, top of the mind questions in top four to five minutes. I'm risking saying this because there is a lot that we would like to talk about. And awesome. I don't know what you will take in, you know, four or five minutes. The reactions can only be that it's too good. Thank you so much. Glad, uh, glad it helped. Uh, the, the whole point was to break it down, break it down into 
things that we can apply right away. Um, and that was the intention with which we, uh, yeah. So thank you, glad it uh, resonated. All right. Uh, sure. I... Go ahead, VP. Yeah, so uh, sure, obviously, excellent, excellent presentation. Um, just one thing um, that I was thinking about when you talked about meditation and you said people, meditation is a higher level. So, you know, perhaps when we talk about next time, you can give a little more color on the um, starting point of meditation, because I think as you correctly identified, even um, I have also, you know, felt that it's very hard to meditate, right? It's, it's very difficult to get into that state. So right. where do you start, right? If you can just give some pointers on that side uh, in your, in the next session, when we talk about that. We can do really that. And, and, uh, and Rajesh uh, can discuss a lot about this as well. Um, so yes, uh, we, uh, we, we can take this on as a group. Yeah. Hey, on a lighter note, if we need any tips on presentation, we should reshare to Kishore. Oh. <laughs> I don't know how he churned all these slides so nicely. <laughs> oh, it, it's been in the works for some time. So what I do is, uh, you know, uh, a, a lot of it typically happens in soon after meditation, I can tell you this. Uh, so uh, during meditation, some of these thoughts come in. Uh, I, I literally run for my notebook and, and either jot it down or draw it and then put it because I cannot get back to that uh, uh, state again. So uh, typically happens, you know, uh, 30 to 45 minutes of meditation or an hour of meditation, uh, you just come out of it and you are filled with these thoughts and insights. I, I have to capture it then and there, otherwise it's lost. So I've been doing this for a period of time. <laughs> so- That's uh, very nice. <laughs> You've laid it out very well. Visually, it's very nice. Very cool. So thanks again very much, Kishore. One quick note was that there were a lot of comments uh, in the Zoom session itself. And I think it might be lost if you don't go back to the full recording, right? So somebody who's on a computer, they can probably copy the comments and put it in the WhatsApp group or something. So I'll save it into a document. Over the next few days or something. Yeah, I'll save it into a document. I think it gets saved. Excellent. Yeah, thank you. Very uh, cool. Thank you so thank much. You. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I have, I have already put that on the chat window in the WhatsApp. I, I copied and pasted it because I know that as a presenter, he would have completely lost yes, what was what people were talking about. Yeah, no, I have not seen anything yes. there. So I will, I will do that. Yeah, will do. Awesome. No, thank you so much. Uh, I, I know I went uh, overboard. I had not uh, done this before. I have not. This is the first time I'm presenting this content. So I have no idea how much time it was going to take. <laughs> so I appreciate uh, you staying a little bit over. So thank you. Yep. I think yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. I think we probably we probably will uh, you know follow up on this. I think you know anyway yeah. the uh, the uh, you know just going back to the iceberg melting thing. I think ice, melting an iceberg takes a lot of time. <laughs> I think we need to spend a little bit more time again next week. Yeah. Yep. So Guntax, one last point. You know, I think it's worth you know storing this session in the video form rather than in the audio form because then we can. You know, see, see the presentation also. Absolutely, Kishore, you are you are the host and you have the control on it. Yes, I I I will I will uh, figure out where to post it. I'll, I'll do that. No, actually, we can put it as a private YouTube video unless you want to make it public. I'm, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, put it as a private YouTube video and we'll then do. It's a link. We'll do, we'll do. Yeah, uh, I'll work on it. Yeah, sure. 
yeah, I, again, it, it'll be uh, it'll be useful. If it's useful, I'll, I'll definitely do that. Yeah. Cool. All right. Anybody else has any other comments, questions, feedback for Kishore? It was very well articulated and um, you know pictorically represented. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, um, big okay. it, uh, <laughs> um, you know, one thing that I, I realized, uh, you know, even in my engineering. Hey, game, turn on your lights, Kishore. Oh, or turn off my other one, I guess, in the back. But yeah, it's, I don't know what else I can do here. There we go. Yeah, much better. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, back in my engineering days, uh, you know, I, I would use, uh, you know, there were lectures, obviously, but then I would use multiple books and then write down my own notes, uh, which is my way of inter under my understanding in, in those notes, right? And then uh, two days before the exams, I would have a flood of uh, friends come over to my house uh, and just take a photostat copy of the notes. <laughs> Uh, and <laughs> that's what, that happened for all the four years. So, so familiar <laughs> feeling. I was on the other side. Yeah. Of the <laughs> <laughs> so I had this habit of uh, uh, understanding, trying to understand, put it in my words. My however, how I understood it might be wrong, and that's where we need to correct for sure. Um, but. Uh, <laughs> so in that sense, it was the same continuation of the same thing. Yeah. No, it was it was excellent, uh, Kishore. Uh, I mean, I think your presentation itself was flawless. I mean, it deserves to go on YouTube public, in my view, because yeah. it's really well presented. I agree. I agree. And, yeah. uh, and 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 I think you know, from my point of view, one of the thoughts which occurred to me was that you know, listening to you know, reading the Gita and sort of discussing it, you know, there is an element of theory in it, if you will, right? And I think the way what you have done is you've very nicely connected that theory, at least theory for me for now, with sort of the practical aspects of uh, of uh, Yoga Sutra. Uh, so I think it's, it's it's really kind of nicely kind of uh, integrated. So to me, it was really really very helpful. Thank you for that. Yeah, glad uh, glad it helped, Ajay. Thanks. I think it uh, helps. Uh, at least. It I think it helps me to understand how we might approach, you know, that, that theory, how we might practice that theory. No. Very helpful. Very well done. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. You connected the dots very well. So it was great. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for all the feedback. Great. I'll go through the chat also and then we'll, uh, we'll, um, discuss more next week. Thank you. Fantastic. And Thank I think you. With that, I think with that uh, one and a half hours of uh, end session, I think we should probably conclude our session today. So two hours of uh, I forgot <laughs> yeah. lost track of the time. So, yeah. Two hours. Yeah. yeah. Probably we can conclude with our concluding play prayer, and uh, we'll request Alpana to lead it. Punamidam, Punam, 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 Pun
All right. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Enjoy your Thanks. Weekend. Bye. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.